Well, good evening. I cannot tell you how much I wish that we were able as a congregation to gather together physically tonight to be able to worship the Lord in one another's uh, company and to feast on His Word, being physically uh, together. But given the health and safety guidelines that have been given to us and also the excessive heat that we are experiencing today, it is the path of wisdom for us to come to you tonight via live stream uh, only. But I take some comfort in the fact that God is not limited by space uh, and by physical distances, uh, so we have every reason to expect God to show up and to do a special work in our hearts and in our midst tonight, especially as we worship Him and look at His Word together. In fact, in our passage tonight, we're going to encounter the Apostle John, who was not able to physically gather with his brothers and sisters in the Lord on the Lord's day to worship God in the company of his brothers and sisters, but we're going to see in our passage that he worships the Lord anyway while by himself, and Christ shows up in a very special way and blesses John with a very powerful vision of himself. I think we could safely say the most powerful vision of Christ that John had ever experienced. And in our passage for tonight, the Apostle John is going to bring us into that experience that he had on the Lord's Day sometime around 95 AD. And so I hope that on this evening of us distancing from one another that we will be able to experience Christ in a very special way together with the Apostle John as he brings us into that experience of Christ. We began studying the book of Revelation last Sunday uh, evening, and we looked at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which serves as sort of a cover for the book of Revelation. What we find in our passage tonight uh, is John's effort to tell us the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him, and it's a pretty crazy story. And so let me have you, if you've not already turned there, turn to Revelation chapter 1, and my goal tonight is to look at verses 9 through 20, and the title of the message tonight is How Revelation Came to Be how Revelation came to be. Revelation is a most unusual book, unlike any other book of the Bible. Imagine our Bibles without the book of Revelation being the last book written. Imagine our Bibles ending with Jude, and there's no book of Revelation. John's goal is to tell us how this last book of the Bible came to be written by him. Let me read to you beginning in verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the Word of God. As we break down this passage for tonight, uh, we're going to observe five descriptions that John offers in telling the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him. Five descriptions that John offers in telling the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him. And you can find the sermon outline on the document, um, at the bottom of the document that has the worship lyrics that you were just using. The first description that we find in this passage is number one, John describes himself in relation to his readers and Jesus. He describes himself in relation to his readers and Jesus. Observe what John says to his readers in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. John describes himself in two ways in connection with his readers. First, he speaks to his readers and describes himself as your brother. I'm your brother, he says. John views himself and his readers as members of the family of God, all of them sons and daughters of God, and he cherishes the opportunity to speak of himself here as simply their brother. Secondly, John speaks to his readers and describes himself as your fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus There are three things we see here that John views himself as a fellow partaker of together with his readers. Number one, the tribulation that is in Jesus, which speaks of severe troubles that are experienced on account of persecution for the cause of Christ. 
Number two, the kingdom of God that is in Jesus. And number three, the perseverance that is in Jesus. John is himself a partaker in these things, and he knows that his readers are too. And it is as a fellow partaker of these things together with his readers that John writes the book of Revelation to them. John is about to tell his readers how Christ appeared to him and called him to write this book, but he wants them to know up front that he didn't get this assignment because he was some high and mighty apostle, but simply because he was one of them. John also very much wants his readers to know that he's not writing this book from an ivory tower, but from the vantage point of being a patient fellow sufferer with them in the kingdom of God. Well, there's a second description that John offers in telling the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him. Number two, he describes the circumstances in which he heard the voice of Jesus. He describes the circumstances in which he heard the voice of Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Basically, he says, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we learn here that John was on the island called Patmos. We also learn why. He was on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was banished to this island because he was preaching the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. Patmos was an island off the western coast of Asia Minor, located about 30 miles or so off the coast and was about 50 miles from Ephesus. And from John's language here, early church tradition inferred that the island of Patmos was used evidently as a place of exile for people who offended the Roman regime in order to put them out of circulation. And John was sent here for this reason, because of his preaching of the Word of God. So we can imagine the island of Patmos as something like an Alcatraz of John's day, where John is now banished to and surrounded by water on every side. John is an old man now, and being banished to this island John is probably thinking that his most meaningful days of ministry are now over. Little does he realize that one of his greatest works still lies ahead of him. As to what John was doing on the occasion when the revelation of Jesus Christ came to him, John says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Clearly, John is communing with his Lord, and something unusual happens during his personal time of worship or devotions. Literally, John tells us that he became in the Spirit, indicating that this was a state of being that he found himself ushered into by the Spirit of God. Perhaps Charles Ryrie is right when he suggests that John found himself in a trance-like state of spiritual ecstasy, much like Peter found himself in Acts 10 when he saw a vision. 
At the very least, we know that John is completely under the sway of the Holy Spirit when the events that he is about to describe occurred. As to when this unusual thing happened, John tells us that it happened on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. As early as the A.D. 100s, we see Sunday being referred to as the Lord's day by ancient Christians consistently with how John speaks here. The resurrection of Christ happened on a Sunday, and that event was such an epic and world-altering event that Sunday was forever thereafter called the Lord's Day by believers in Jesus. From the earliest days of church history, Christians gathered on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, but John is not able to assemble with his brothers and sisters in the Lord because he's exiled on this island. So what will he do with himself while being socially distanced from the people that he would love to gather and worship together with? As one writer says, and I quote, every Sunday during his exile, John must have longed for the hours of public worship in Ephesus, his lonely heart seeking such satisfaction as it could find in private worship. Unquote. Little does John realize that this particular time of personal, private worship will be one of the most profitable moments of his life. While in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John hears from behind him, he says, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, which means that this voice was loud reverberating with great volume and penetration like that of a trumpet. Keep in mind that all John has heard thus far was a voice from behind him. He hasn't even turned to look at the person speaking to him just yet. He tells us in verse 11 that the voice was saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John hears these words and now knows that the speaker has something that he wants to show to him, and he knows that this speaker wants John to write down what he sees and to get this message somehow to the seven churches, all of which are in Asia Minor in the western part of what is now today modern-day Turkey. It's not every day that one hears a voice like this during his personal devotions, giving an instruction like this. John must turn around and see who this speaker is. And this brings us to the third description that John offers in telling us the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him Number three, he describes the vision of Jesus that he experienced. He describes the vision of Jesus that he experienced. John turns around and looks in the direction of the voice that is speaking to him, and the next verses describe the epic moment when John lays eyes on Jesus for the first time in over 60 years. 
Listen to what he says beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. The word translated lampstand speaks of a tall stand on a pedestal at the top of which is a container for oil with a wick that is burning and giving off light. We're told that these lampstands are golden, reflecting the preciousness of, of them. In the middle of the lampstands, John says that he saw one like a son of man. As we mentioned last week in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, Daniel says, and I quote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So for John, in saying that he sees one like a son of man, John is thereby saying that what he is beholding looks very much like what he would have imagined that Daniel was looking at many, many hundreds of years prior. It seems that John knows in this moment that he is staring out the very person that Daniel saw hundreds of years prior, one who is human, yet utterly glorious, the Messiah. Describing this one whom he is beholding, John says that he is clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. At the very least, back in these days, a robe reaching to the feet was the mark of a person of distinction. It likely depicts Christ in his high priestly attire, because this is how the priests dressed in the Old Testament. Consistent with that interpretation, John also says that Christ was girded across his chest with a golden sash. And you'll note that the high priest in the Old Testament wore a sash as well. Such attire is consistent with the teaching of Scripture in the book of Hebrews, for example, that Christ is our high priest who represents us before the Father. After describing the clothes that Jesus was wearing, John describes Jesus' head and face. Listen to what he says in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. First of all, John says that Jesus' head and his hair were white, like the whitest of wool. Not with the whiteness associated with aging, but with the white that bespeaks wisdom and, and purity, antiquity and immortality. According to John, Jesus' head and his hair were white like the purest snow with no defects or blemishes to darken or soil them in any way. John also says that Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. Light exuded from Jesus' eyes with a fiery beam that John could only liken to a flame of fire that was both beautiful and dangerous and frightening to behold. I am sure that the Apostle John 
felt completely naked before these blazing, all-penetrating eyes before which absolutely nothing can be concealed. John cannot bear to look for long at Jesus' eyes, so he drops his gaze to look at Jesus' feet, and he marvels at what he sees. Listen to what he says in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. In other words, Jesus' feet were like smooth and shiny bronze that is glowing with the heat of a furnace. Imagine metal that is no longer in its liquid state, but it is so hot that it glows with the heat that is emanating from within. And the glow itself would tell you that it is too dangerous to touch. In the mind of John, Jesus' feet are cause enough to fear. John dare not even bow before and kiss these feet for fear of being consumed by them. Wherever these glowing feet might choose to tread, they would consume and instantly turn to ashes everything that they would touch or even approach. In other words, Jesus' feet are dangerous feet. Earlier, John said that Jesus' voice was like the sound of a trumpet, but he now adds to that description and says in verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Living on the island of Patmos, John knows what it's like to hear the thunderous roar of crashing waves against the rocky shore, and Jesus' voice was like that. Imagine many waves crashing against the rocks with a thunderous roar. That's what Jesus' voice sounded like to John, which means that Jesus' voice is not a voice that sounds safe. It's a voice that sounds to John like it could hurl him against rocks and shatter him to pieces. It's a voice of unimaginable power. We have all seen footage of tsunami waves coming in. And we have seen that nothing can stand against the power of those waves. Waves that can lift cars and throw them around like toys and uproot large buildings with ease and move them. In this verse... Jesus' voice is being described as giving off a sound that bespeaks such power, full of restless and irresistible energy. John continues his description of Jesus in verse 16, saying, In his right hand he held seven stars. We're going to let Jesus tell us what these stars are in verse 20. But for right now, John is simply describing for us that Jesus is holding in his right hand seven stars. Whatever these seven stars are, they're being protected by him and wielded by him to accomplish his purposes. As for Jesus' mouth and face, John continues in verse 16 and says, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
John is doing his best to describe what he sees as Jesus speaks. He's already told us that when Jesus speaks, his voice is like the sound of a trumpet and also like the sound of many waters. And John also notices here that something brilliant and sharp is coming out of Jesus' mouth as he speaks, something that is both beautiful and highly dangerous, something like a sharp two-edged sword, something that could cut you in pieces in an instant in both directions. John looks at Jesus' face and says at the end of verse 16 that his face was like the sun shining in its strength. In other words, the sun at high noon on a cloudless day, way too bright to look upon directly without being blinded. Literally, John says that Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its dunamis or power. And saying this, John is not merely saying that Jesus' face is bright, but that his face wields a power that makes it unsafe to approach too closely or even to look upon with mortal eyes. Just like we would never stare at the sun at high noon on a cloudless day. This is what John sees as he beholds the glorified Lord Jesus. We often like to think of Jesus as a friendly sort of fellow who is safe. Some prefer to think of Jesus as a harmless baby in a manger and nothing more. But this Jesus whom John is beholding is not safe at all. He is exceedingly powerful and dangerous. The truth is, there is nothing about John's description of Jesus here that seems inviting, only dangerous, actually. Yet, there is more to this Jesus than what John sees right now in this moment. And John won't discover this extra thing about Jesus until he falls to the ground at Jesus' feet in fear. And this brings us to the next description John offers in telling us the story of how the book of Revelation came to be written by him. Number four, he describes the way that Jesus calmed his fears. Observe how John responds upon seeing Jesus. Look what he says in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John is so overwhelmed that he can no longer stand. And he doesn't just take a knee, he falls. And specifically, he says that he fell, amazingly, at Jesus' feet, feet that are glowing like bronze heated in the furnace. And he doesn't just fall, he says he falls like a dead man would fall when his life has completely gone out of him. He collapses at the sight of Jesus and now lies motionless before Jesus like a dead man. And in falling at Jesus' feet as a dead man, John is assuming a position of full surrender 
permitting Jesus to consume him with fire if he so chose to do so. And John seems to assume that the fate that is going to befall him is certain death at the hand of Jesus. We know from what Jesus says next that John reacts this way because he's afraid of what he sees. This is a man who has loved Jesus for six decades now, a man who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, a man who once described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and yet here he is beholding the glorified Jesus Christ, and he's falling at Jesus' feet as a dead man, completely overcome with fear, surrendered to whatever fate that Jesus wishes to deliver to him, and pretty sure that the fate that will be delivered is death. And none of us should presume to criticize John for responding this way to Jesus. We have no right to criticize John for his response here because none of us have ever seen what Jesus saw, right? None of us has seen the glorified Lord Jesus. There's actually a wisdom in John's response here, which is why he's going to receive no rebuke from Jesus for his response. As John Newton says in the song Amazing Grace, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to what? fear, and grace my fears relieved. It is grace that is actually teaching John's heart to fear Jesus right now, and in just a moment, it will be grace that relieves his fears. John is about to gain some profound wisdom from the lips of Jesus, a wisdom Guys, that is only gained when one is lying low at the feet of Jesus. In Proverbs, we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And John's fear of Jesus is now going to set him up to receive a most remarkable wisdom that comes only to those who fear him. It's actually a remarkable thing that John doesn't try to run away from Jesus, but falls at the very feet of this one of whom he is afraid. He's doing exactly the right thing to fall at Jesus' feet. Observe how Jesus responds to John. Does he consume him with fire? Does he smite him dead? Does he bring up all of John's sins and failures? Not at all. Notice what Jesus does to this imperfect man who has put his trust in Jesus, who lies in fear and trembling and in full surrender at the feet of Jesus. John says in verse 17, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. He reached out and touched me, John is saying, with a touch that did not kill. This is the glorified Jesus 
whose whole being bristles with unimaginable power and mortal danger, reaching out his hand and placing it on John and then saying, do not be afraid. Literally, this can be rendered, stop being afraid. John was afraid and Jesus is telling him to cease from his fear. And then to minister to John's fears, Jesus speaks, I think we can say four truths, and all these truths are regarding himself. Jesus doesn't even waste any time saying to John, hey, John, tell me how you feel right now and why. No, he just speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks truth about himself because this is what John most needed to hear to address his fears. First of all, in verse 17, Jesus says, and we could easily skip over this and miss it, he says, I am the first and the last, but let's just stop with those words, I am. Jesus says, I am, which is ego eimi in the Greek. This is Jesus, at least in part, making an illusion that he is the great I am, who is Jehovah himself. Secondly, he speaks of himself and says, I am the first and the last, which is a title that is only used of God, Jehovah God in the Old Testament. In describing himself as the first and the last, Jesus is not merely explaining himself to John. He's telling John who he is in relation to everything else in existence, in relation to all things. Jesus is saying that he is the first, meaning that everything else comes after him and takes a back seat to him. He also tells John that he is the last. If you trace everything back to its beginning, you will find Jesus. If you follow everything through to its end, there is Jesus. He is the beginning and the culmination of all things. Next, Jesus describes himself to John by saying, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Keep in mind that Jesus' intent here is to comfort John. And there is no better way to comfort John than to remind John that he, Jesus, had died upon a cross. Jesus is saying to John, I am the one who was crucified on a cross and died, but look at me. I am alive right now, and I will be alive for eons and eons, forevermore. In telling John that he is the one who was once dead, Jesus is assuring John that it is truly him. It is truly Jesus who is standing before him, and he is assuring John that he already died so that John doesn't have to die in this moment. In fact, the only reason John will survive this encounter with Jesus is because Jesus had already died for John's sins, but God raised him from the dead. And now he bristles with eternal life that will never end. Next, Jesus describes himself to John by saying, I have the keys of death 
and Hades. In other words, Jesus not only has the power to come back from the dead personally and be personally delivered from Hades, but he now holds the keys of death for every person. And he holds the keys of Hades, the place where departed spirits go to await the final judgment before God. By making this statement about himself, Jesus is saying here that he has the power to send people to their death and to Hades, and he has the power to deliver them from death and from Hades. He holds the keys to death and Hades, and thus has a power that no human potentate could ever dream of having. Now think about this for a second. Jesus has just spoken four truths, essentially, to John. Would these truths that Jesus has just spoken to John comfort you? He says, I am the I am. I am the first and the last. I am the living one who was dead. I now live forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Would these truths that Jesus is speaking comfort you if you were trembling in mortal fear at his feet after seeing what John has seen? The truth is that these words that Jesus is speaking would not be any comfort to someone who has rejected him, who does not believe in him. These truths would be very bad news to Christ rejectors to now learn that he holds the keys to death and Hades. But these truths that Jesus speaks about himself would very much comfort someone who believes in Christ and who has cast themselves upon him for mercy as John is doing right now as he lies as a dead man at Jesus' feet. And these words from Jesus, these descriptions from Jesus about himself are exactly what John needed to hear from Jesus in order to put his heart at ease and to ready him for the assignment that Jesus is going to give him. And this brings us to the final description that John offers in telling us the story of how the book of Revelation came to be. Number five, he describes the writing assignment that Jesus gave to him. He describes the writing assignment that Jesus gave to him. Having revealed himself to John and now spoken truth to John to comfort his heart and to cause John to feel safe with Jesus, Jesus then gets to the purpose of his visit and gives John his assignment in verse 19. Listen to what he says to John. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. In other words, Jesus is telling John to write the things that he has seen thus far in this vision, which represents the things that are right now being revealed to him in this visit, which will include everything that is recorded in chapters 2 and 3. And then John is to write down, look what the text says, the things which will take place after these things. These are the things that John will record from Revelation 4 
all the way to the end. And you can know this because Revelation chapter 4 begins with the words, after these things, which are the very same words that Jesus uses here at the end of verse 19. That's the writing assignment. But Jesus then explains a mystery to John in order to set him up for his task in the next two chapters. In verse 20, Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus calls this a mystery because it's something John would have never figured out on his own if Jesus had not explained it to him. And the first thing Jesus reveals is that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, who are these angels? To figure out who these angels of the churches are, it's best for us to keep a handful of things in mind. First of all, these angels cannot be heavenly angels, like guardian angels of the churches, because in the next two chapters, Jesus is going to tell John to write letters to these angels. Be totally unprecedented for Jesus to commission a man to write letters to angels and to actually find fault with these angels. That doesn't make sense. Secondly, whoever these angels are, they are the angels of the churches who serve some kind of role in connection with each of these churches. Thirdly, the Greek word angelos or angelos that is translated angels here literally means messengers. And it's not unprecedented for a human being to be referred to as an angelos or angelos. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, for example, John the Baptist is spoken of as God's angelos, as God's angel, because he was God's messenger bringing God's message to the people. And for these reasons, most commentators conclude that the angels of these seven churches are human beings who serve as God's primary messenger to each of these churches, whose job it is to oversee the delivery of God's truth to the churches that they preach to. For this reason, for example, Leon Morris, along with many other commentators, suggests that, and I quote, the seven angels of the churches are the pastors of the churches, unquote. And I would agree. The fact that these pastors are in the right hand of Jesus tells you that they're being wielded by him as they minister. Think about that for a moment. When a pastor is ministering to you in a biblical way from God's word, it is as if you have the very right hand of Jesus that is operating in your life for your benefit because your pastor's are God's instruments being wielded by the right hand of Jesus for your good. Also notice that these men are stars, stars that are supposed to shine and give light. The purpose of the stars is not to try to mimic the darkness 
around them, but to shine in an otherwise dark sky. Stars are also designed to wield a gravitational pull that brings others into their orbit and giving them light and warmth the way that our own sun does the planets in our solar system. Having explained who the angels of the churches are, in verse 20, Jesus then says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These are the churches of Asia Minor that Jesus is going to be dictating a letter to through John in the coming chapters. Jesus depicts these churches as lampstands representing the role that the church is to play in being a light to the world, giving off the light of Christ and the light of the gospel. We learned earlier that these lampstands were, were golden, which is pretty remarkable that all seven were golden considering the fact that some of these churches were deeply flawed and will be rebuked by Jesus. And we'll see this in the coming chapters. Yet, they're golden. Learning what these lampstands are, now that we know they're churches, we can now go back to verse 13 and observe where John saw Jesus standing in relation to these lampstands. Based on verse 13, where did John see Jesus? John says, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Jesus was in the middle of the lampstands. He was not above the lampstands. He was in the middle of them, teaching us, guys, that the glorified Lord Jesus is in the midst of his people because that's where he wants to be, as deeply flawed as they still are. Isn't that amazing that Jesus wants to be in our midst? where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is, where? In the midst of them, he says in Matthew 18, because Jesus wants to be with his people. Now think about how much the Christians in these seven churches would have needed this vision of Christ in the midst of them. Think about military troops whose morale is flagging and who are struggling for direction and are wondering at times if they're actually being defeated and wondering if the battle is even worth fighting. And then they turn and they see their general in the midst of them, unfazed by the seeming defeats around how their morale would be lifted by the sight of such a general, especially one as glorious as Jesus is in this vision that John is sharing with us. That's how the sight of Jesus would have impacted John and his readers. You know what? Let Rome do what Rome wants to do. Let them persecute the church and kill Christians and banish John to the island of Patmos Christ's glory is not diminished in the least. He is in the midst of his people, and he is on the move, and he will triumph in the end. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is how the book of Revelation came to be written by John. 
Jesus Christ personally appeared to John on the island of Patmos and told him to write what you end up seeing on the following pages of the book of Revelation, meaning that this book is supernatural in its origin. And it all begins with a vision of Jesus Christ in heavenly glory, which is the primary thought that I want to leave us all with tonight. You know, you've heard a lot from our pastoral devotions this week about the value of beholding Christ. Some may respond to those exhortations and say, why are you telling us to behold Christ when there's so many complex issues that are facing us today? Come on, man, give us something practical to do. Well, the church of A.D. 95 had just as many complex issues facing them as we do today, if not more. And what did Jesus think they needed? A book entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. A book in which the glorified Jesus is unveiled so that they could get a good long look at him. And a look that begins right here in chapter 1 that John has described for us in our passage tonight. Think about the Apostle John. He's a victim of the injustice of persecution, exiled wrongly on the island of Patmos for practicing his faith, doing no harm to anyone. And yet here he is unjustly. Yet before Jesus reveals anything to John that will be recorded in the following pages, he first lets John behold him. Because Jesus knows that this is John's first and greatest need. More than anything else, the most practical thing that John needed in this moment is a vision of the glorified Christ. And before John himself gets into telling us what Jesus says to the churches and things that are going to come to pass in the future, John first describes for us the vision of Christ that he saw. Because John knows that our first and greatest need is to see Jesus as he now is in glory. Do not underestimate the practicality and the power of beholding Christ and its power to put everything else into perspective. As Leon Morris, the commentator, says, I love this, and I quote, he says, it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. Is. And I'm going to read that again. It is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. Which means if you have not sat long at the feet of Jesus and beheld Jesus, then I can confidently say to you tonight that you don't see anything at all for what it really is. So if you've not beheld Jesus in a prolonged and meaningful way as he's revealed in his written word, please don't try to fix society's problems because you don't even see those problems in their proper light to even know how to bring them the fix that they truly 
need, right? And we got a lot of people nowadays who are expending a lot of energy trying to fix society's problems, and they have never seen Jesus. They've never beheld him. And to the degree that they've heard about him, they have rejected him. And they have no solutions. In your own life, if you're struggling with some sin problem that you can't seem to get past, what you need more than anything else is to behold Jesus. Yeah, you need to learn how to repent, but repentance comes from what? From beholding Jesus. As John MacArthur said in his sermon last Sunday, and I quote, What makes the sinner repent? Not seeing your sin, but seeing your Savior, unquote. It's seeing Christ as He is that helps you to then see your sin for what it really is, which brings you to true repentance and sets you up for genuine transformation. John Piper puts it succinctly when he says, Beholding is a way of becoming. Beholding is a way of becoming. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As we're beholding the Lord Jesus, we find ourselves undergoing a transformation into the very image of the one that we are staring at. That's what Paul is saying. There is incredible blessing and transformation to be found in simply beholding Christ. Everything begins with beholding Him. Whatever transformation you long for in your life, it begins with coming to the feet of Jesus and beholding Him. Perhaps you have many fears and phobias in your life that make you anxious and afraid of many things. You may think that your problem is that you have too much fear, but your problem may be that you have too little fear of Christ. Ask God to open your eyes to see the glory of Jesus in His blazing holiness and justice and glory and His wrath against sin. Ask God to cultivate in you a godly fear of Christ and then come to the foot of the cross and believe in Jesus and allow Jesus to resolve your fear of Him with His grace. And if you allow Him to do that, He will not only resolve your fear, but He'll put all of your other fears into perspective. Perhaps you struggle with the fear of man. And you're afraid to take a stand for Christ for fear of what other people might think of you. Well, why do those people loom so large in your life? Well, you need to behold Christ. What you need more than anything else is to see Jesus the way he presents himself to John in our passage tonight. And you will realize that anyone else you might fear on this earth is nothing compared to Jesus our fear of man will be strong only to the degree that we're not beholding Christ and seeing his glory. Perhaps this is why Isaiah 
or why God treated Isaiah to a vision of him before he commissioned him to be his messenger in Isaiah 6. Perhaps this is why God treated Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1 to a revelation of his glory before he called Ezekiel to be his messenger in the following chapter. Perhaps this is why Jesus treated his disciples to three years of beholding him and his glory before then giving them their great commission. Perhaps this is why Jesus treated Saul of Tarsus to a vision of him before he commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And perhaps this is why Jesus treats John to a vision of himself before commissioning John to write the book of Revelation for our benefit. And perhaps this is why the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ so that we could behold the Savior that John beheld. Because it all begins and it ends with beholding Christ. This is what has challenged me so deeply over the last couple weeks. When you read this description that John gives of the glorified Lord Jesus, you realize this is the one that I'm going to stand before at the judgment This is the one who will judge the living and the dead and determine the destiny of every person, including my destiny. This is the one that we ignore and snub every time we choose to go our own way and follow our own will instead of his. This is the one whose word we despise every day that goes by in which we have plenty of time to read and watch and listen to everything and everyone else, but no time to listen to his voice as he speaks to us through his word. We would commit these sins far less often if we beheld Jesus as he is, and we would repent far more earnestly and quickly when we sinned against him if we beheld Jesus as he is, and we would cherish his grace so much more than we do if we could behold Jesus as he is if we would take the time to gaze upon Jesus and behold him as John is beholding him here. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you tonight, please don't try to run away from him. You can't. Later in this book, people are going to try to hide from the wrath of Jesus Christ. They're going to actually cry out, for the mountains to fall upon them in order to hide them from the wrath of Jesus Christ that is coming upon the world, but they will find that there is no escaping his wrath. The only thing to do for you and for me is to do what John does in our passage today, and that is to fall at the feet of Jesus. Don't run from him. Fall at his feet and cast yourself upon his mercy. He is the only one who can save you from his own wrath. And he actually died on the cross to shed his blood and to give you atonement for your sins so that you won't have to die under his wrath, but can be delivered from his wrath by him if you would believe in him and call upon him as your Lord and Savior. As the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 2, 
or Psalm 2, verse 12. Pay homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and blessed are all who put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know the efforts I've made tonight to present the glory of what is revealed in this passage is just so so weak and inadequate. I just pray, Lord, that you would remove any scales that are in my eyes and in the eyes of anyone listening to this message and that you would enable us to see you as we've never seen you. Remove all hindrances and give us a clearer glimpse of you than anything that we have experienced. I almost don't need to ask anything else of you other than to help us to see you. Because if we see you with the eye of faith and worship, we will be transformed by what we see. We'll be changed. This is our greatest need. And we thank you for letting us see you not only through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which left John blown away. He said, we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John wrote about what he saw of you in the gospel of John. But now he's seeing you in glory and he's writing about what he sees. This is what you look like now. And may this image go with us. And may we daily cast ourselves at your feet. I pray, Lord, that your grace would teach our hearts to fear and that your grace would relieve those fears in ever-deepening cycles that are profoundly redemptive and would spur us into greater heights of holiness and passionate service to you and leave us more in love with you than ever and more committed to giving this vision of you to the world and telling the world what you are like. Our world, Lord, is following so many pathetic saviors, and sometimes these pathetic saviors capture our eyes too. The only thing that can deliver us is to see you as you're revealed in a passage like this. And it will wean us from all other saviors. 
So help us to see you as you really are and then burn your image deep within us to where it's unshakable and it goes with us everywhere. And it makes us the people that you've called us to be. And I ask these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said,